the essence of servant leadership is that you're using your gifts to enhance and launch and propel others rather than for your own self-aggrandizement. And the best leader is going to be the best servant in the organization. For me personally as a leader, I'm challenged to remember always that projects, as important as they may be, must take a second place to people. The goal is to try to serve and have compassionate approaches toward people while meeting the goal, but never sacrifice the necessary compassion to get to that goal. How was the Word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the Word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's Word and apply it to your life. In Context. You're listening to Michael Easley in Context. My name is Hannah Seymour, and we are in our sixth episode of the leadership process. We've been taking a look at the book of Nehemiah and then talking with folks about how to practically apply these biblical leadership principles that we're able to pull from the text of Nehemiah and hopefully apply to the leadership positions that we are in and our daily lives. In this episode, Michael will be teaching from chapter 5 of Nehemiah, and we're going to be talking to several folks, Dave Ramsey, Janet Parshall, General Reno, Stephen Mansfield, talking more about servant leadership, about what it looks like to have compassion as a leader, and also about the importance of integrity. So let's go ahead and join Michael as he teaches from chapter 5 of Nehemiah. Conversations around the coffee pot or coffee machine reveal a lot about an organization. Office politics consume a great deal of time, energy, and resources. They distract from the work, they demoralize the troops, and they harm the organization and the people. As enemies from without fade from view, an enemy from within is exposed. In the story of Nehemiah, after he's already dealt with facing opposition from Sanballat and company, by chapter 5, there are new problems, new challenges, hunger, and exploitation lead the list. The threat is to the community, and of course the threat is to rebuilding the wall. If the enemy's war on words threaten the project, the war from within threatens the community. The solution to this enemy is going to require good and godly leadership. It's really that simple. People follow good and godly leadership. Good and godly leadership, good and godly character is everything. And the baseline for all of us who lead, whether it's among peer, in the home, in the workplace, in the nonprofit world, or the local church, character, godliness is where it begins. Well, let's look at these threats that come from within in Nehemiah chapter 5. Now, there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were others who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses, that we might get grain because of the famine. Also, there were those who said, 
We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters are forced into bondage, and we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. These four threats are all internal. To review, hunger, mortgage, debt, and slavery. Let's look at each one very briefly. The first threat was lack of food. Evidently, because they've been working on the wall, they're obviously neglecting what they would do, let's say, as as farmers, if they're working a crop, if they're bringing in grain or planting at different times of the year. So they're hungry. There's lack of food. The second group is mortgaged. They've mortgaged their fields, their vineyards, even their homes to have money to get grain. Third, there were those who borrowed money from their Jewish brothers, and they were paying taxes to Artaxerxes, and now they're in debt. This is like compound interest rates on their Jewish brothers. The fourth problem was in order to repay those creditors, they'd actually sold their children into slavery in verse 5. There are a number of passages from the law, from Exodus 22, 21, Leviticus 25, other passages that address it was improper for you to charge interest rate to your brother. It was improper to charge usury and certainly to enslave one another to pay each other back. Think about this as a combination formula that's both economically and socially a disaster, something even our government would be unhappy about. And so their brothers loaning to one another, taking excessive interest rates off one another, all these problems this internal conflict begins. So let's get a 30,000 take on the story so far. They've already made great gains getting the wall half height rebuilt. The discouragement and the attack and the opposition from Sanballat and his company, his enemies. Nehemiah has just calmed that down. We might sum it up saying, remember, it's the Lord who's great and awesome. No matter what threats we face, remember the Lord. And we had that great Reminder in chapter 4, verse 17, one hand doing the work, the other holding a weapon, the sword and the trowel. Unfortunately, now we've got these internal conflicts. Well, how is Nehemiah going to respond? What's a leader to do? And we read his reply in verses 6 to 10 of Nehemiah chapter 5. Then I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, You are exacting usury, each from his brother. Therefore I held a great assembly against them. I said to them, We, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? Then they were silent. And they could not find a word to say. Again, I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? And likewise, I, my brothers and my servants, are lending them money and grain. Please, let us leave off this usury. Well, Nehemiah's response in verse 6 is anger. He's mad. He's frustrated. We've seen it in chapter 4. Now we see it again in chapter 5. There's a time for a righteous anger. 
He's angry at their selfishness and their greed that's brought the situation. He's angry that they've forgotten what's happened with their enemies. They're exploiting their own brothers. Not to step on anyone's toes or hurt anyone's feelings. Well, maybe a little bit. But these places that cash workers' checks for extraordinary fees of 20-plus percentage points to cash a common worker's paycheck at the end of a week. That's excessive. The Israelite could have a loan or an interest, but it had to be modest and it had to be paid back on time. These, of course, have turned into exploitation of their brother. I love the phrase in chapter 5, verse 7, I consulted with myself. (laughs) It might give us a little hint of his anger that he's controlling in verse 6. I was very angry when I heard these words. Uh, But it might also mean that once in a while you have to think through it yourself. The word contended here is strong. It's the idea of a legal proceeding. I consulted with myself and I contended with the nobles. So even though it's a popular verse with a little humor to look at, what I believe he's saying is I had to compose myself to restrain myself to think through the process and then I contended legally with the nobles and rulers who were exploiting our brothers. Technically, it's like a pledge. They were behaving like pawnbrokers instead of brothers writes Derek Kidner. So during this time of rebuilding a wall, it's gotten more difficult, and we've got loan sharks, essentially, swimming around, eating their own. Well, there's a good lesson here for good and godly leaders, and that, again, has to go back to not only facing opposition, but confronting opposition. He's going to rebuke them. He calls an assembly. He names the offense. And then, interestingly, he compares what he has done to help his brothers. They'd purchased or redeemed some of their brothers who were indentured Jews. Now, if you go back to Leviticus 25 and verses 47 on your time and read, you'll see how you were to be indentured if you were poor, if you'd lost your way of living. You would, let's say, indenture yourself to a friend who was a large landowner, a large farming operation, and you'd work for him at a fair wage until you got yourself out of debt. Opposed to a compulsory slavery where someone is captured and drugged into slavery, an indentured servant was one who was willing to work this way, to work his way out. Well, good godly leadership knows the difference and is not afraid to call it sin. Even perhaps more flagrant was they didn't fear God. They didn't fear the reproach they brought on the name of God. And he reminds them of their delivery out of Egypt from slavery, their delivery from Babylonian captivity. And in verses 9 and 10, Nehemiah's action shows his own integrity. Again, Nehemiah chapter 5 verse 10 Likewise, I, my brothers, my servants, are lending them money and grain. Please let us leave off this usury. Please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses. Also, the hundredth part of the money and of the grain, the new wine and the oil that you are extracting from them. Verse 7 is clear. You are exacting usury. In verse 11, he says, uh, give it back. And you have to see the word play and the pun at the end. 
the new wine and oil that you are extracting from them. <laughs> Not just physically the press of the oil or the vineyard that would crush the grape or crush the olive for oil or for wine. That's what you're doing to them. You're extracting it out of them. You're squeezing them to death. Well, the people respond in verses 12 and 13. Then they said, we will give back and we will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. So I called the priest and took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. I also shook out the front of my garment and said, Thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possession who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus he may be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. The people's quick response, we will give back. Now, Nehemiah knows that words are cheap. And he is a man of action. He's a man of planning. We saw that in the beginning when he heard the bad report, how he prayed and planned before he was before the king. And here he does three things. He calls the priests. This, of course, is going to put them as witnesses to the oath. Secondly, he makes them take an oath. And thirdly, demonstrably, he shakes out his garment. If they lie, if they break the vow they've committed, grave consequences await them. And he asks God to shake every man out of his house. We call this talionic justice in a sense. You know the phrase, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth in the Old Testament. Uh, an injury for injury. Well, if if you don't do this, uh, I'm, we're gonna God's gonna shake you out, and so the consequence was they would be like the victims they had taken advantage from. Again, it's an excellent transition, and it's an excellent way for Nehemiah to show the detail and the account of his own leadership and his own stewardship. Now, on a time note, this is probably written near the completion of the wall but included here because it was fitting with the subject. When Nehemiah is appointed governor of Judah, it's about a 12-year term, and he is at the highest position of leadership at that time. Well, as the chapter continues, verses 14 to 19, we see a pattern of leadership exposed and explained. Verse 14, Moreover, from the day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the twentieth year to the thirty-second year of King Artaxerxes, twelve years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. But the former governors who were before me, they laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine, besides forty shekels of silver. Even the servants domineered the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also applied myself to the work on the wall. We did not buy any land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials, besides those who came from around the nations. Now that which was prepared for us each day was one ox, six choice sheep. Also birds were prepared for me, and one in ten days all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the governor's food allowance, because the servitude was heavy on the people. Remember me, O my God, for good, according to all that I have done 
for this people. Let's take this a few principles at a time. Number one, good godly leadership does not take advantage of position. Nehemiah was afforded the privilege and responsibility to eat, to feed the people who worked for him, to entertain the nobles, to take care of the officials. In other words, he had fringe benefits. He had an expense account. And he details what the former governors had done and how their actions were a burden for the people with heavy taxation. But Nehemiah didn't go that far. He took what he needed. He did not take too much, but he took what was appropriate to care for those whom he was leading. That's a stinging indictment as we look at leaders both here in our own country and around the world whose people live in poverty while they live on the backs of those overly taxed poor people, people that work hand to mouth for a living while their leaders live extravagantly. Good godly leaders do not take advantage of position. Second pattern or process of this leadership is that good and godly leadership share in the work. Now, many leaders delegate from a distance. Many leaders delegate but never get their hands dirty. Nehemiah delegated, but he also applied himself to the work. He was there getting his hands dirty right along with the rest of them. Think about this. When we work for someone, how much harder do you work when the boss shows up, when he or she rolls up their sleeves for the work day, for the project, when you go out into the community, when you see the boss doing something, how many photo opportunities have we seen of our government officials who go after a hurricane or a flood relief or some trauma in our country and they leave their coat on the plane, loosen their tie, roll up their sleeves, and they get their hands dirty filling sandbags or hauling away debris and alongside them might be Secret Service and other elected officials. We might see it as a photo op, but it also shows us they're just people, and they're willing to get their hands dirty on occasion. Thirdly, a good and godly leader never takes advantage of an unfair situation. It's like insider trading. Nehemiah had wealth, and he could have easily purchased land that was being sold at rock-bottom prices for people to survive. And he goes on record saying, I didn't do that while others did. It would have been very easy to buy low and sell high, but I wasn't going to do that to hurt my brothers. And fourth, good godly leadership commits his own resources. Again, in verses 16 and 17, it's fascinating where he explains what he did. All my servants were gathered there. We don't know the precise number, but when he comes from Artaxerxes' leadership and leaves there to go to see the condition of his people, he's got an entourage, and they're there working with him. He actually enumerates the number of 150 Jewish officials at his table. So (laughs) these people who are there, many of them probably leading groups as well, but he's feeding them all. So his position required certain entertainment allocations, we might say. He had to pay for a cabinet and key staff but here's this remarkable man who says I didn't extort him I didn't take the full allowance in the past I thought Nehemiah's point here was that he was entitled but he didn't take advantage but the more I study the book I think he's saying Nehemiah provided out of his own resources in other words he didn't take the allocation the government allowed him 
he took out of his pocket to provide for these people. One scholar, Edwin Yamauchi, believes this involved feeding between six to 800 people plus the 150 Jews mentioned in Nehemiah's record. Fifth, good godly leadership evidences compassion for those he leads. Verses 15, he mentions burdens. Verses 18, we read the servitude was heavy on this people. Nehemiah could have imposed even a modest tax, but instead he bears the cost out of his own pocket rather than inflict further injury on his people. He won't use his position at the expense of others. And sixth and last, good godly leadership prays and trusts God with confidence and a clear conscience. This is the first of six prayers where Nehemiah asks God to remember him. We'll see him as we unfold the text. But verse 19, a very quick, short prayer. Remember me, O my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. It reminds me of Paul's words to the church in Thessalonica. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 7 and following, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner, nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. I know it's a long passage. Let me try to give you a running commentary. First of all, note where he says, follow our example. We weren't undisciplined when we were around you. We worked alongside you. Follow our example. He says it twice. In verse 9, he said, we were a model for you. Follow our example. This is not hard, men and women. As leaders, we are an example whether we want to be or not. So whether we're willing to serve alongside, have compassion with our people, it speaks volumes. It's also compelling to me that Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't lay all the burden on the leader alone. He's instructing the audience. He's instructing those who are following leaders. If you're not willing to work, they don't get to eat. What a great idea. (laughs) You got any teens at home? (laughs) You could tell that teenager, hey, if you don't want to do your chores, no supper for you, kiddo. Seriously, the idea was there were people that were doing more than their share, while others who were undisciplined and busybodies were living off of their hard labors insight also into work in a quiet fashion eat your own bread 
I often tell people that I serve with, we all have sandboxes. But I can't fix everything in the organization or the company, the church, or the ministry. But I've got a sandbox. What's my primary role in that sandbox? Do I do my work in a quiet fashion before the Lord, eat my own bread, and don't grow weary of doing good? As you and I serve Christ, not merely people, as we serve Christ, there's a really good contented feeling going, I work for the Lord today. I worked hard. I'm tired. It was a full day's work I put in for the Lord. And that's not weariness. That's a restfulness of knowing our labor was good. Well, some great and compelling thoughts from Nehemiah chapter 5. And Dad, you and I wanted to look at three more pieces to the leadership process. First, going back to this idea of servant leadership. We talked about it in one of our early episodes. You spoke with Dave Ramsey and Janet Parshall and got some great thoughts from them on servant leadership. But we wanted to listen in on two more conversations you had. One was Stephen Mansfield, who is a prolific author, speaker, and is doing some really interesting things in Kurdistan right now, which he will talk about. And also want to listen in to General Reno and his thoughts on servant leadership. So first, let's listen to Stephen Mansfield. I use a phrase to help leaders think this through, and it's this. It's a sentence. You have a destiny, but your destiny is fulfilled by investing in the destinies of others. You know, servant leadership can lead some people to think that if they're the banker or the senior pastor uh, or or some other kind of leader, that they really should be mowing yards or raking leaves. And most of the leaders I know are certainly willing to do whatever practical things are necessary. Some of the finest leaders I know and the highest ranking I know, I've walked in and seen them, you know, wiping down sinks with paper towels in the men's room and things like that because they care about everything looks. But that's not the, the essence of servant leadership. The essence of servant leadership is that you're using your gifts to enhance and launch and propel others rather than for your own self-aggrandizement. So I'm probably at core, more than anything else, a teacher. And so my gift is about teaching others, training others, helping them to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of them, helping them to achieve uh, the heights, the power, the influence that they're meant to have so they can do good in the world. What I don't do is sit there alone in a room and look in a mirror and go, I am awesome. I am a teacher. Look at me. Because you know what? If there's nobody else around, I can't be a teacher. Teaching assumes there's somebody uh, to receive what I have to teach. And so the attitude that I have to have is not just me standing alone, you know, like some kind of statue to be admired, but rather thinking in terms of the fact that the entire reason for any gift I have is to invest in others. And that's the essence of servant leadership, that what you do is about others and the way your gifts are measured is uh, in terms of what others have accomplished. I'm not primarily interested in what I accomplish. I'm primarily interested in using my gifts so that others can be launched to their best. Pretty soon I'm going, for example, to Iraqi Kurdistan to help to consult with the Kurds on their constitution. They're about to have a referendum on liberty and independence, and they're working on their constitution. Well, yeah, I have an academic background. I have a lot of years. I've had a lot of teaching, read a lot, studied a lot, most of it around this issue of religious liberty and law and our American founding fathers and all of this that's been embedded in me. Well, what's that for? Well, it's for such a time as this. I can go over there and help them think through religious liberty issues to help a new nation come into existence. Now, if I just, at this point, you know, shout like Tarzan and think I'm awesome, I'm missing the whole point. All of that investment in me, divinely orchestrated, was so I could go help these people 
uh, the largest people group in the world without their own homeland, suddenly have a nation of their own. It was about their destiny, not mine. And that's how leaders have to think. What gifts I've been given, what resources I've been given are, are meant to be invested in others. I know that God will always do the character check and am I willing to change the diaper and carry the groceries and, and, uh, and you know, mow the yard of the widow and that kind of thing. And yes, you always want to respond yes to those kinds of character checks. But for the most part, servant leadership is not about that. It's about a mentality that says what gifts I have are about investing in you so you can take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of you. I appreciate Stephen's comment, what gifts I have are about investing in you so that you can take hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of you. I've never heard someone say it quite that way, but that's true. Our gifts are for the larger body of Christ. Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And so Stephen's mm-hmm. talking about you know our gift as leadership and servant leadership is to help the greater body. Well, we also chatted again with General Reno. Let's listen to his comments on servant leadership. I like the way you worded this, that it's serve yet lead. Some people think that the leaders are picked from the universe of servants, and then when they are appointed to their leadership role, no longer do they have to to serve. Au contraire. The further up the chain one goes in duties and responsibilities and opportunities as a leader, the more they need to serve. It needs to run concurrent with leadership. I think of Jesus and feeding the 5,000. It was the end of the day. And he said, have we got any food? Well, five loaves and two fishes, that won't get it. And and so he blessed the food after they were set down in companies, and he served. He was teaching them in a leadership role. At the end of the day, he served them. I remember going to Southwest Asia often in my last job uh, in the Air Force, and I went for two reasons. One, I went to see what was going on and to see if our people were properly trained, properly equipped, if they had the tools to do the job we were asking them to do. And the second reason I went was to be seen. I wanted them to see that the general was not afraid to come to where we had ordered them to go. Uh, So as a leader, it's not only seeing, that's the leadership role, but it's being seen, the servant being willing to serve them. I I think of a specific example, uh, a gentleman, who's uh, a tech sergeant in the Air Force, his first name was Tony. I met with him one night in Afghanistan, and we talked for about two hours, and he told me a lot of personal things. I went back to the States. Two days later, he was killed in action. And I was the one that was asked to go and meet with his wife and express the condolences of the chief of staff of the Air Force and the president of the United States and talking to her and being able to tell her some of the last things that he talked about because I had taken the time to listen to him, to serve him, uh, to be available for him to talk to. And then I was able to share that with her. So while I was serving him in Afghanistan, I was able to lead her when I was back here. So I think they go hand in glove. And the best leader is going to be the best servant in the organization. And I think the best servant is not one that does it because he knows it'll get help him get ahead, which it does. But it's the servant that serves because he genuinely wants to serve. That's the heart of Nehemiah. That's the heart of Jesus. And if we want to be effective leaders, we need to have the right heart. (music) 
So another trait of the leadership process that we wanted to talk about specifically from chapter five is this idea that great leaders have compassion. And I know you just taught on this, but just give us a refresher. Um, How is Nehemiah showing that a great leader has compassion from this chapter? Two verses in chapter five illustrate, I would say, insight into Nehemiah's compassion. Verse eight, I said to them, we, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now would you even sell your brothers that they might be sold to us? And then they were silent and could not find a word to say. So he's calling on them. We've redeemed them out of slavery. Now you're re-enslaving them? And then in 518, after he explained his own exemplary way, he didn't take advantage of his position. He says at the end, yet for all this, I did not demand the governor's food allowance because the servitude was heavy on this people. So we see this insight. He cares about these people. They've been taken advantage of. They've sold themselves. They mortgaged their property, we would say. They're indentured servants now, and they're still imposing labor on them. Mm -hmm. So we get a great picture of Nehemiah saying, you can't treat people this way. Mm -hmm. Well, interestingly, I think similar to Nehemiah, a conversation you had with Dave Ramsey, who many people might not think compassion as a first word that comes to mind <laughs> when they think of Dave Ramsey, but he sorry shares, Dave, hope you're not listening. <laughs> he shares some anecdotes <laughs> that I think are kind of similar to Nehemiah having compassion for his people and sticking up for them, protecting them. So let's listen to Dave's thoughts on compassion as a leader. Having compassion, if there's one thing that I've learned from you, and I've learned a lot, but there's one thing that has, it always haunts me, and I hear I hear you echoing my head. Some, it's kind of creepy. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember asking you years ago when a caller has some crazy idea or challenges you or has done some really foolish things, you don't get mad at them. I said, Dave, don't you want to give them a dope slap once in a while? <laughs> and you said, Michael, I'm not mad at them. I'm not mad at them for being in debt. I'm not mad at them for making poor choices. And that really ministered to me as a pastor going, for goodness sakes, that's sort of lesson 101 with people, right? You, now, now sometimes people can be egregious and hurt us, but the overall thing I heard from you is have compassion for people who have made poor choices or sometimes it's a consequence of their life, health, things they had no control over. Talk to us about, as a leader, how do you have compassion when people make some pretty poor choices? Well, to start with, you know, full disclosure, I don't always, but when I do it right, it usually is around some area that I have struggled with too, which most of us have enough struggles that that helps us have compassion with a lot of different people. But what if I was sitting there in that situation? Now, when I do lean in and try to move them, and if they're stuck and they want to really just argue and they're just kind of being passive aggressive with their question, it's not really a question, it's a statement, I'm going to do this stupidity, then I'm probably, for their own good, going to hit them with the spiritual two before. And that's compassion, too. But uh, but to start with, you know, I don't just start. I had a guy call yesterday on the air, and he was a new caller. And he was like violating, like he had a list of every single thing I say not to do. And he was doing all of them in one call. And I was like, dude, if you were, a, if you were a, like a long time listener, we would have filleted you by now. You know, I told him that I said, but you're new. So let me help you. Let me walk you gently through this. Right. And so, uh, but that's what it is. I, you know, Larry Crabb says that the best healers are wounded healers. And another friend of mine in the Christian world says he doesn't trust, does men's ministry. He says, I don't trust somebody doesn't walk with a limp. 
And so I walk with a limp. I mean, I got a Ph.D. in DUMB. Sharon and I lost everything due to my stupidity. At 28 years old, I was so scared I couldn't breathe with a brand-new baby and a toddler and a marriage hanging on by a thread. So I hear these ladies call me. I hear Sharon's Mm. terror Mm. in the back of their voice. I hear how scared they are because I remember how scared Sharon was, and I couldn't make that fear go away when when we were broke and I was stupid. And so the last thing she needs is to be pounced on for the stupidity that's causing her terror. Mm -hmm. She needs to be led into hope, away from hopelessness. And so if I can just keep their shoes on and walk a mile in their moccasins, it helps me to do it. Now, sometimes I get too much coffee, I'm on the air, and sometimes if I'm not careful, it becomes an entertainment moment, and I don't want to do that. But, But the days that I'm best, and actually the best feedback we get on the show, is when I just stop and go, I get it, and... Oftentimes, the person will start crying on the mm. other end because somebody actually heard mm. them is all it is and spoke life over them. And, and so that's all it is. It, it's just meeting them where they are. And it's not like, you know, I'm holy or something. It's because I was stupid, too. I get it. I know how it feels. Who showed you compassion? Pastor at the time. Grace it was like, this doesn't define you because losing everything was defining me. And to me, for somebody to speak and go, that jaguar really was that your definition is that your spiritual definition no you're more than that god's got a plan for you it's not to bring you harm but to bring you hope and you know those kinds of scriptures and people speaking that kind of stuff speaking life over us and that and just looking at you and saying i see you as you're going to be not as you are today this is a snapshot not a film strip and your life is really a film strip if we look at the snapshot it ain't pretty but god's going to redeem this and give back what the locusts have taken Mm -hmm. and he has he has that was truth so again um we've got young leaders out there listening to you and me and um maybe they're a little hard a little bristly a little judgment high high justice high black and white value Mm -hmm. how would you encourage them to have compassion for the people they lead or co-labor with i'm that guy because i um but i'm just a little older and a little more seasoned a little more polished now than i was but i was that guy um because i'm like we said a high justice a guy that's my my definition so i first thing i do is draw that sword and on the air or in my office with one of our team members over the last 30 years of doing this my biggest mistakes have been when i move too fast my first reaction is peter you know chop off the ear right and jesus says whoa Ooh, down boy. <laughs> and he's done that to me all my life. <laughs> and so down boy, you know, just sit, <laughs> chill. Don't send the email. Wait 24 hours. And in God's good grace, using that kind of thing, I have actually, you know, over the years, we've got had over a thousand folks work here. We got about 600 here today. Of those 400, most of them left on their own. A few of them we had to leave, and a few of them we were highly frustrated with as they left. But I have never fired someone in anger, and I've never allowed it to be done here. Sometimes we get really frustrated with somebody, but at least what, and what they've done is just so abhorrent that you just, the decision is made, but how you, you got to go home and sleep that off. You got to sleep it off overnight. Just take your time. Slow down. And compassion will catch up with your judgment. It's refreshing for me to hear that because I know Dave pretty well. And he can't come off as an in-command kind of get-or-done guy. And yet we see this underside of him, which he truly does care and wants to have compassion towards God's people. 
Yeah. Well, again, you had a similar conversation with Janet Parshall on this, and Janet tells this story that truly brings me to tears. I've listened to it probably five times at this point, and so I'm not going to set it up any more than saying that. I think, first of all, you have to realize that there's not a perfect person among us, that we're all flawed and that we're all fractured, and that everybody has a story. That's a saying we have around our kitchen table. Everybody's got a story, that there's the outside person that we know and work with, but then there's that inside person who has their own private fears, their own deep wounds, their own unmet goals and dreams, and we have to be very cognizant of the fact that there's pain out there. This is not as good as it gets, thank you, Lord. And so as our in our position as leaders, I think we have to be cognizant that there's always the goal. There's always that purpose for what we're doing and why we're doing it. But it falls second to understanding that we do this in and through people. I am so convicted every time I read in the New Testament how many times Jesus had compassion on them. Now, Jesus is the quintessential definition of a leader, but he always had compassion. He never lost sight of the people he was leading. He was tuned in to their hurts, their pains, their lost dreams and visions, but he never, ever forgot that first, last, and always, it was about people. For me personally as a leader, I'm challenged to remember always that projects, as important as they may be, must take a second place to people. The goal is to try to serve and have compassionate approaches toward people while meeting the goal, but never sacrifice the necessary compassion to get to that goal. Were were there defining points in your and Craig's life that that really, okay, now I need to understand compassion differently? Mm. 100%. Oh, if you had 10 hours, I could tell you a million stories in Washington. I remember the first time that I did a debate with this woman who was known in Washington for her anger. In fact, I had been warned ahead of time that that was very much who she was and how she would try to entrap you on a debate. Well, I came already. I had my facts and my figures and my white paper report all ready to go. And the tally light goes on in the camera, and we begin. And I thought, boy, I'm really doing this great. I'm giving her all the facts. And when it was all said and done, I cried all the way home because I realized that whether or not I had won the debate... I had besmirched my role as an ambassador for Christ, and I I cried. I cried out to the Lord, and I said, Father, please help me to understand that, as Oswald Chambers says, we're not called to make men converts of our opinion. We're called to make men converts of the cross. So God, give me another opportunity. And so I began to pray for this woman, at the same time asking the Lord to give me an opportunity to intersect. So, yep, back in front of the camera we went on multiple (laughs) occasions. But I prayed for her on a regular basis. And one day in the green room, everybody else had cleared out except this gal and myself. And as we were packing up our things, she turned to me and walked over across the room, and she said, Janet, would you do me a favor? And I said, sure. She said, would you pray for me? My life is falling apart. And I realized why the Lord had been touching my heart over and over again to have compassion. It wasn't about winning a debate on national television. It was about showing her Jesus Christ, and the platform for that simply happened to be in a television studio on national TV. You bet I prayed for her. And long story short, a few months later, she came to faith in Jesus Christ. Wow. Action in practice changes lives. Wow. We saw Geisler debate a philosophy professor uh, back 1982, SMU. This guy didn't know what he had walked into. <laughs> and uh, you, know, you know Storm and Norman, right? And Absolutely. So, and so, I mean, he chewed this guy up. I mean, it, the whole place, Perkins students and Dallas students, they were all applauding for Geisler. <laughs> oh. <laughs> this guy was just being filleted and field-dressed in front of us. As soon as it was over, 
I mean, applause, and everybody wanted to get, you know, hellos. He walked over. He shook the guy's hand. And Frederick Howe, who was a professor at Dallas, was with him on the days. And he said, Michael, he went up to him and he said, I want you to know this isn't personal. And just, mm. you know, because he had uh-huh. clearly decimated the guy. Mm. And wow. there was no debate of who won it. And he said, uh, you know, this isn't about you and, uh, uh, personally. And I care about you as an individual. And, boy, you talk about a lesson. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. You know why? I think it's because we've forgotten to really have a broken heart for the lost in our world and the hurting in our world. And we get so mission-oriented sometimes. We just forget that, that it's about people. And that's why I think the Lord sometimes touches and often breaks our hearts. So we'll remember again that it was for people he went to the cross, not for projects. So we've talked more about servant leadership having compassion as a leader. And then the third and final thing that we wanted to touch on today as part of the leadership process is the importance of integrity. A great leader has integrity. And let's join your conversation with Coach Les Steckel about integrity. You know, I can remember being a coach uh, for many teams in the NFL as an offensive coordinator. And the first night the players would come in and I'd tell them to put their playbooks underneath the desk, and they'd look at me kind of funny because you're used to just rambling through the playbook, getting ready for a training camp. I said, we're going to talk about one thing, and that's in relationships because I said that's critical to me and uh, the future of this team and how our offense is going to play. And I said, it really boils down to two things. It boils down to integrity and trust. And I just said that, you know, integrity, we can all define it a different way. But I think, uh, you know, I hope to be able to model that. And I expect you to, when I ask you something, it's always going to be an honest answer, even though it's difficult. It may even get you in trouble. But if it's totally honest, I really need that because that way our relationship will be strong. And when it does, then we have trust. So I said, uh, there's two things that uh, I want to continue and emphasize. And I'd, I'd write a capital I and a capital T on the board and I'd just hammer it as hard as I could in my fist, which hurt. And then I'd yell, it's only two things. That's it. And that's integrity and trust. And I said, fellas, the point is, is that we're here to build a team. And it goes like this. When you tell the truth, I tell the truth, there's trust. And when there's trust, then there's a team. I love Coach's comments, and it reminds me of a number of times, unfortunately, when you, you follow someone in leadership or you follow someone in a bit of a mess and you're maybe called in or you're now the leader of that group. One event I'll never forget, I was new to a position, and uh, as you learn things in an organization, there were some things I just scratched my head about, this isn't right. Hmm. And I went down the chain and asked a few people, and everybody was kind of quiet, and I finally talked to two principals who had some, let's just say, authority over the area. And they said, well, that's what we were instructed to do by our former boss. Mm. And I said, well, what's the right thing here? And we talked about making it right. And it was going to cost us some money. And I said, well, let's do the right thing, back to my mantra, in the right way. And then we're going to go home. And um, they sat up in their chairs and smiled. And I said, listen, if someone asks you to do something that you know is wrong, 
come to me yeah. because I'm the ultimate yeah. boss in this situation. And uh, they kind of, you know, smiled a little bit. I said, there's a new sheriff in town. <laughs> <laughs> because the idea is as a leader, if something's going wrong in the organization and you don't have the courage to confront it and say, this is wrong, yeah. let's make it right, even if it costs us some money, because that money is a small price to pay for a reputation of having integrity. And I have to believe that most folks not only want a leader who has integrity, but they themselves want to be exhibiting integrity. And so to know that you have a leader, a manager who is standing by you and saying, yes, I want you to do the right thing in the right way. I think most people want that. On the front of my Bible, years ago, I started doing this and I eventually made a list of 30 things that would happen if I lost my integrity. Mm. But I just wrote these one sentence things that would happen if I lost integrity. And they're, they're pretty personal. I'll just share a couple of them. Uh, I would have lied, offended, sinned against God. I would ruin my marriage. I would lose ability to minister. I would ruin my credibility with, and I named the churches I was involved with, and so on. And it's not, it's not this omen. It's more of a reminder of your integrity. What you say, what you do. Are you true to your word? Can you be trusted? Back to coaches, IT. Mm-hmm. Can you be trusted? And uh, if not, you really can't lead. And I don't think people are stupid. I think people have this nose. They have this discerning ability to know, can I trust him or her as a leader? And as believers, no matter if we're in the secular market, in a ministry market, in a nonprofit market, or uh, even just leading our own little enterprise, our word, uh, our truthfulness, being willing to own our mistakes, There's just no substitute for having that kind of integrity. And that's why I love this part of the process where Nehemiah documents it. This is what I did. Uh I want everyone to know. You can almost see him putting a heavy period on that last sentence. Remember me for good, God, because I did it this way before you for your people. That's good. Well, for our listeners, I hope you have been enjoying this series as we are marching through the leadership process. If you go to our website, michaelincontext.com forward slash leadership process, you will find a couple different tools. And we're throwing up a new PDF this week outlining our traits that we're walking through as the leadership process. So you'll see kind of the outline of where we've been, where we're going, some scripture references, just things for you to look at in your own spare time as you delve into the leadership process on your own. Well, thanks again for listening and we will be back next week. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.